punchline for a joke cannot have an explanation of the joke no well you can't have the same words that you used to set up the joke in the punchline it just doesn't work that way you know what i mean like you can't wake say up. wake up come on wake up that's not the one i want that's not the one we wanted but we're here we're, we're awake wake up you drunk fuck that's Thank the one you you know what i mean like you can't say for example the terrible joke that you told right before we started yeah I can't say hippo. You can't say like... I can't say campus. Where, where does a hippopotamus go to college? He goes to the hippocampus. Yeah. So does that work? No. It's still not funny. It works a little better, but it's still <laughs> not funny because it, it's also a non sequitur. Because like, yeah. the hippocampus has nothing to do with hippos going to college. Or does it? <laughs> or does it? It may. It might. So yeah, I wanted to say I'm so jazzed. <laughs> For the show today. Am I in number two? Is two going into two? That's what I want to know. I don't know. You tell me. Ah, You're shit. staring at it. Yes. yes. Okay. It was very important that the... Your fucking OCD came to bite us in the ass I, last week because your... I'm in channel your two. Your input was in plugged one. into the wrong... Your mic was plugged into the wrong input. <laughs> the story and it just of, ruined your day. It's the story of my life. Day. Wrong input into the uh, hippocampus. Got to make sure it's all going in the right hole. All right. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. And I'm Mike. And boy, do we have a show for you. For you. Today on RMA, we discuss Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence by Dr. Anna Lemke. And find out the fate of Nat X in his first court appearance since the bad old days. <laughs> All this and more today on a very special edition of RMA. Yeah, that was pretty good. How are you? Good. How yeah. are you? I did actually got a little sleep after excessively ruminating over your your legal <laughs> matters. Yeah. we. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, last night I, was, uh, I had a hearing for a speeding ticket that um, my uh, attorney, uh, Mike, over here... <laughs> Uh, gr graciously agreed to represent me in the local village court. It was all for the show. It was all for the show, and uh, we recorded a little uh, post game that we might play for you, and we'll uh, <laughs> tell you the all the excitement and uh, drama that that went on. Uh, but first, I'd like to welcome all the new monsters listening here in the USA and around the world. We love hearing from you, so please, if you like what you hear, write us a review on your favorite listening platform and share it with a friend. Where can they find us, Mike? <laughs> they can find us at middleagesrecovery.com come there to listen submit your story buy awesome merchandise and get in touch with us if you so desire great reviews will be read on the air please log on to your favorite podcast app you don't have to read uh, it you can just just go know, to go to yeah apple ad lib go to apple go to the apple podcast yeah. app and leave the five-star review some of you have, <laughs> is it that time of the show where you blow your nose? I always have to Jesus blow. Christ, it's becoming like the uh, recovery in the news thing. It's the my motherfucker. Catch it's like your catch <laughs> mucus. My catch mucus. Um, yeah, so also join the private Facebook group. Uh, the discussion continues 24-7, 365. Uh, we screen new members 
keep out the riffraff. And the discussion is unsearchable, so we can all feel comfortable, safe, and happy. <laughs> all right. Buy a t-shirt. We have awesome new designs available through middleagesrecovery.com on our shopping page. And if you buy one, Mike will be sure to eventually mail it to you from the RMA World Headquarters. And uh, I have a very quick turnaround. Yeah, you do. And, and to be clear, Mike was reading just then. But he's uh, speaking Did in the third person because I wrote it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell us your story by logging on to middleagesrecovery.com. Stroll down and fill out your, the your story form, and you could hear your story read right on the air. Finally, the best way to help the show is to share, share it. Share it with a friend. Yes. If you get something out of it, share our love, experience, share. strength, and hope, and help grow the RMA movement. Yes. And we have a review. We do. Yes. And um, this is an interesting one because it's a review from... Uh, Brussels, Belgium. Belgium. Um, yeah. So uh, here it is. It's a five-star review. And uh, I think I know what he's talking about here. His, I couldn't figure that out. I, I'll, I, th- I think I figured it out. The, the title is, You Had Me at Franz. Mm. Remember that one time we did, my, I'm Hans and I'm Franz and we're here to pump you up? Yes. That was Hans and Franz. Vaguely. Oh, so right. He, he okay. must have heard that and... One person thought it was funny in Belgium. You know, if you can get one listener off of that crappy joke, it's totally worth it. It's all I do this for, to get one laugh somewhere in the world. Um, he says, I looked you up after hearing Mike's interview on This Naked Mind. Mm. I am now steadily making my way through each episode, enjoying the banter, the honesty, and the openness. I find the musings very helpful and love that you are not pushing any ultimate truth. Mm. Boy, that's for sure. <laughs> Ramble on, guys. What is, what is, what is ultimate truth? Uh, the Irish in Brussels are listening in sunshine euphoria via Apple Podcasts. That's from Belgium. Thank you so very, very much. Yeah. What's sunshine euphoria? I don't know. Is that a place? I don't know. Maybe it's an app. Do you think we have any listeners in the Navy that are listening on ships at sea? Maybe. I was wondering about that. I don't know. Do people download podcasts and like, are people getting caught up on, on our podcast on a boat or a submarine? Do you think? I don't know. There's a, there's a lots of people listening now. Uh, and it's anything is possible. I always marveled when I was listening to George Norrie or Art Bell on coast to coast AM and they would directly address prisoners cause they somehow knew that their radio show was very popular, popular in prison amongst huh. you know lifers and things like that wow so he would frequently you know directly address the prison audience i thought that was great <laughs> he'd be like you know hang in there and all of that so if you're well, on a it's like your, your, your intro makes me want to say you know ladies and gentlemen and ships at sea yeah because it, <laughs> it would you know, be great yeah so so let's anyway. just assume that they're there so we have a story also yeah and this yeah. is actually a reaction um you know we had a show last week with uh bianca and Jeff uh, talking about their harrowing experience with kratom addiction and uh, withdrawal and all that. And it really resonated with a lot of people. It did. Uh, and then this was one such uh, uh, reaction. Hi, my name is Haley. I recently listened to your guest speaker series with Jeff and Bianca on the RMA Nights podcast. It <laughs> really should be our second show of the week, RMA Nights. I think that's what we do. We do a second show at night. Yeah, gets all crazy. You know, and maybe yeah. we can hang out at night when I'm not at court. <laughs> I, I was so happy to finally find someone who knew about Kratom. I started Kratom about four years ago, similar to your situation, at a small dose. As time went on and noticing how the effects benefited my anxiety, in quotes, benefited, my anxiety, depression, racing thoughts, energy levels, etc., my doses started to rapidly increase and I slowly but surely became addicted without even realizing it. 
That's the most insidious sort of addiction, is it not? Creep. It's like, what do they say? It's like a, um, being boiled alive, like a frog. Putting in a, a frog in the pot, yeah. cold water, and then turning the burner on, and then the frog will not jump out because it cannot perceive the difference. Did that phrase like come, come to popularity during a period of time where people were eating frogs? Because <laughs> it's from France, I believe. It must be. Yes. Okay. Uh, just want to clear that up. Uh, I began taking Kratom on a daily basis and would sometimes take up to six tablespoons a day. That seems like an awful lot of powdered a tablespoon, leaf to eat. A tablespoon's about four to five grams. Ugh, I yeah. can't, ugh. So it's a shitload. After the years passed, I was completely hooked, and I was like, wow, I finally found something to substitute my prescription medications. Um, not knowing too much about Kratom, besides the effects it gave me, I never found anything negative about the product, so I continued my daily doses. I, I only laughed because I, do that, I did that same, or I do that same thing. What? Well, like when I went off my psych meds, oh. I was like, oh, I started supplementing with Kratom, and it really helped a lot. Luckily, I never... Never had got up to six I was able to just keep it... <laughs> normal dose how exciting right not so much over time i began to notice my memory started to decline i was not able to focus as clearly and could barely complete a full sentence without remembering what i wanted to say she doesn't say how old she is but that's kind of a common occurrence in my life kratom without kratom but still noted uh not (laughs) knowing much sorry about kratom or possible withdrawals and wanting to try to quit i went cold turkey this was one of the most miserable experiences I've gone through in my life. I was so sick, anxious, angry, cold sweats, depressed, restless, no sleep, nauseous, hopeless, and ended up in the hospital from withdrawals, essentially an opiate withdrawal. Mm. No one in the hospital, doctors, nurses, specialists, knew anything about Kratom, so I basically had to get through it on my own. Basically a guessing game on how to get through it. Mm. I'd also spoken to my PCP, primary care physician, oh, I believe, okay. and psychiatrist about Kratom, and they had never heard of it. If you're talking to your PCP, you're smoking too much of it. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Um, it's weird that a psychiatrist would not know about Kratom, especially if you're talking to them in the context of an addiction, right? Well, it- I noticed, and this is maybe five years ago, the people, you know, it was only just becoming something they were aware of at my, like, I was at some serious outpatients who were dealing with tons of and did the they know about element. kratom they did but you could tell it was still very new they they only could do a test for it if they had special like reason to think someone was using it because it cost more for that test oh so it's well, couldn't you, they bill more for it um i guess but maybe it wasn't covered by insurance oh, yet or, maybe that's I, why. I know that it was only used in like if they heard something and then they would test the kit hmm. and then kick them out but, they kick uh, you out for Kratom? Yes, they did. Hmm. Even though they don't really know what it is. Right. <laughs> They're just like, if the addict wants it, it must be bad. Yeah. Pretty much. That's interesting. Um, after about two weeks of going through the withdrawal process, the symptoms started to subside. I thought I was starting to feel back to my normal self. Unfortunately, after a month or two, I started back up again. I couldn't let that feeling go that Kratom gave me, and it was heartbreaking because I didn't know if I would be able to stop again if I wanted to. Eventually, I got back to my normal dose, four to six tablespoons a day. And of course, this addiction did get pretty expensive with the high doses I was taking. Uh, I felt defeated and disappointed to have started up again. I was using it for everything. This I find interesting. Anxiety, take Kratom. Sad, take Kratom. Depressed, take Kratom. Uh, Similar to most other drugs, right? right? Right. Marijuana, uh, alcohol, 
It's, yeah. it's the drug for all seasons, right? Yeah. Yeah. All of these drugs. But if I didn't have Kratom on hand at all times, it was extremely anxiety provoking. About a month ago, I decided enough was enough. I knew I could not be dependent on this for my entire life. I decided I needed to stop and find a way to wean down in a healthier way than going cold turkey. Through working with my therapist and using hypnotherapy, I'm slowly weaning myself off and I'm down to one tablespoon a day. It's been a struggle, to say the least, but I'm hopeful that I will be completely off Kratom within the next few weeks, fingers crossed. Uh, I'm happy I found finally found someone out there who's knowledgeable about the drug and appreciate your website and telling your story on the podcast. It was a comforting feeling to know that I'm not alone. Um... And that I'm not the only one out there struggling. Uh, It's concerning to me that there's no one in the medical field that has any knowledge about Kratom. No one deserves to go through this. And I know the subject needs to be discussed and researched more properly. I appreciate you letting me tell my story. And I wish the best for both of you and stay safe. And most importantly, congratulations on your recovery. Peace and love, Haley. Thanks, Haley. Um, I, I, for one, over the last couple of weeks have received an education on Kratom that, you know, on the one hand, you have guys like Ben Greenfield on his podcast you know, putting spoonfuls of this in their you know, herbal tea in their protein yeah. shakes and taking it because, you know, you can work out longer and harder because you're essentially on a low-level opioid, mm. right? And on the other hand, you have stories like this and yeah. Jeff and Bianca who, you know, it, it just completely gets gets away from you and, and the nature of the drug, uh, you know, gets you to the point where you uh, you can't stop it and it ratchets yeah. up and you and because you can buy it at any gas sure. station and we're going to talk about that in the context of dr lemke's book about yeah. availability right yeah um you know you can get it and nobody seems to think anything of it it's like a five-hour energy drink or something right like you were yeah. saying equating yeah. it to it definitely um my, it definitely gets you going. My consciousness about Kratom has really been raised since we've been talking about it. Mm-hmm. So now, like, I drive my son to Mineola a couple times a week, and yeah. there's there's a gas station there. Do you know the one I'm talking about? It's right in the corner of uh, Jericho Turnpike and Roslyn Road, and mm-hmm. it is a huge sign, Kratom. Kratom. And I'm like, wow, you know? Mm. Maybe. What could go wrong buying powder, mysterious powders at a gas station and adding it to your coffee? <laughs> Same thing that might go wrong if you buy Four loco from your local uh, gas station. And Man, tall I, boys in the morning. I just missed the four loco <laughs> thing. I really wish I, you know, we had, do you ever drink Cisco? No. Cisco is I've heard this, of it. They, they used to call that liquid crack back in the eighties. And it was basically, um, it, it, it got sold in a bottle, like it was a beer or something, but it was really like, um, a low level liquor or yeah. something. A couple of bottles of that. <laughs> like and you'd malt be, liquor. You'd be out of your, no, not, not malt liquor. Like, like liquor, liquor. Yeah. yeah. Like this was like 12%. Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, yeah. right. That's like what wine is. Tasted right? like candy. Um, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for that. It's kind of interesting because before we did this special, you know, I had really the research I had done, basically, including myself. Um, it, it, I didn't hear a lot, or it hasn't been reported a lot that this is happening. Um, but it turns out that quite a few people. You know, maybe there, it's like the silent suffering out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, and also, uh, Bianca, by the way, she she wrote her Kratom journal, and um, oh, I yeah. highly recommend reading it. We've posted it on middleagesrecovery.com. There's a link to it. Or you can, um, you can get that directly from our private Facebook group. And actually, Bianca and Jeff uh, are members there. Jeff's a moderator. And uh, if you're interested and you want to reach out to them, uh you know, go ahead and do that on there. Um, I actually have a much uh, a shorter story that I did want to read because one of our awesome fans, um, Ryan, 
uh, who, who's been a great listener up to this point. He's been a long supporter of the show. And, uh, and he reached out. He was touched by this, um, by this story. And he just wrote a quick post, um, a little story about his Kratom experience. Uh, and uh, Ryan says, as it relates to the recent episode on Kratom, I would like to say a couple of things. First, I will state that for 15 years, I have struggled with alcohol and drug abuse, primary drugs of choice being heroin and alcohol. I have been to rehab a number of times, and there isn't much I haven't experienced when it comes to the pain of drug and alcohol addiction. Listening to the most recent episode of RMA hit me home in a deep way. Over the last six years, I have had Kratom be one of my biggest struggles. At times, taking up to 80 grams a day. Wow. Folks, that is a lot. That seems like a lot of Kratom. That is really a lot. Um, and taking it uh, every one and a half hours. It became problematic and expensive and created that old familiar unmanageability that addiction brings into one's life. In a weird way, I'm grateful because Kratom bridged the gap between being in heroin and full sobriety and in turn may be the only reason I'm alive right now. However, it causes a lot of pain and destruction in my life just as the lady in the episode described it uh, in her own. It's a controversial plant. And I'm glad this episode is being heard for people who aren't fully aware of the potential this drug has to wreak havoc on your life. At the end of the day, I can't take it. I've proven myself time and time again. However, I am still and will always be pro-Kratom as it has objectively saved some of my friends' lives Hmm. and my own from the ravages of heroin. Keep on keeping on. Ryan, thank you so much for writing that, Ryan. You know, um, only drug addicts know what 80 grams is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think of it in terms of cocaine and, you know, that would have been, you know, a lovely, a lovely thing to have. Oh God, 80 grams. So um, anyway, that sort of does it for our discussion on Kratom, but the discussion does continue. um, And this is an ongoing struggle. Well, not a struggle for me. This is something I'm now thinking about more is... You know, I do supplement with Kratom uh, in the morning. Supplement. I know. That's, it makes it sound less... It's a vitamin. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, and that's how I feel about it. Um, and I haven't gotten to a point where I'm feeling like it's fucking my life up. Or, Has your dose ever gone up from when you started? Or are you I, still maintaining at the same level? When I started, I experimented with different, you know, amounts just to see like... 80 grams one day, I one never did that day. much. No. no. Most I ever tried was like 12 grams in a day and really... I just felt nauseous and tired, mm. and then I just backed off of it. So for whatever reason, I don't know. But at the same time, now this makes me afraid to stop it because I'm hearing all these horror stories. But now I kind of want to to but see if you're if only I, taking like a little bit. It shouldn't matter. And a few times, you know, where I went a few days because whenever I didn't have it, I didn't have that compulsive chasing mm-hmm. that I used to do. If I knew I was running out of heroin or alcohol right i would be like freaking out while i was t- drinking my taking my last drink mm-hmm. i've never had that sensation that doesn't mean it's good however and i am still concerned now about it but thank you so much for everybody who's reached out and bianca and jeff and ryan and uh and be careful with the kratom folks yeah be you know. extremely careful be extra you know um and while you're at it quit smoking <laughs> so uh life update we had, you know, we spoke about this a little bit um, at the uh, beginning of the show uh, last night. My, Mike, my uh, new attorney, he uh, he represented me. I'm an old attorney. For a case. Uh, and we um, <clears throat> we recorded a pre and a post game. Well, let, let's, set, let's set, the, set the stage so, for them a little bit. Set the bit. stage, so, counselor. So a few weeks ago, you were, uh, you were driving from your one place of employment to your other place of employment 
to, you know, relieve the little old lady that was <laughs> minding the store for you. Right, I used the term employment loosely, by the yes. way. Um, and you exceeded the town speed limit, which was set at 35 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. And when the officer pulled you over, you were, you may or may not have, you, it is alleged that you were traveling at 50 miles per hour. Is that's that correct? Is that correct? Yeah. So you were issued a ticket that is on correct. the site. And the officer told you, hey, go to court. It's fine. Don't worry. Don't worry about, about it. We got to pull people over here. He right. Said. Hey, right. man, we got to do this. Which I tell you is a Jedi mind trick because they yeah. just don't want you freaking out on the side of the road, yeah. right? Okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so um, so you get your, your disappearance ticket or your, you know whatever they call them these days. And um, you contacted me and said, hey, would you... Would you stand for me in court? Uh, You're my tandem spot. I said, sure, man. Sounds like a hoot. Admitted to the bar, so. Right. The right bar. So we decided to do it. And then you called me yesterday or two days ago and you were like, that's tomorrow. (laughs) I was like, fuck. So I had to re-educate. I had to educate myself on uh, traffic law. Which he did. I was very impressed. But you should have seen the bill he sent me. Uh this one was on the house, man. The next one I'll bill you for. <laughs> there, there will never be a next one. Well, that's how, uh, just lawyers are like drug dealers, right? right. You get the first one first on the house free. and then you keep coming back. Um, so anyway, we had to go to court and we recorded a, well, a little bit before and we recorded a little bit after. What are we going to play him? Um, all right, let's, let's go before. Okay, here it is. Greetings, Monsters. I'm here with Mike and uh, this is Nat X. We're sitting in the car outside the uh, village courthouse, getting ready to uh, have my hearing. And how do you feel about the case, Mike? I feel pretty good. I think we can get a good deal from this prosecutor, yeah. shave off a few points off the uh, the license situation, and yeah. uh, you know, walk out of here with our heads held high. And uh, you can't see us, but uh, you should see Mike is decked out in his lawyer outfit. I shaved off my scruffy beard. He's looking very good, and uh, I can't believe... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is being done for my speeding ticket, but uh, my wife was like, "I don't. You, you look like a totally different person. I, <laughs> like, I haven't had a suit on in a year and a half." So, but we're about to go in, and we just wanted to check in and um, wish me luck. I mean, by the time you hear this, my fate will be sealed. But uh, may just be one of us tomorrow on the pod. It's true. It's true. These people. <laughs> this is the same place I got my DWI six years ago, which he just told me. Which uh, I neglected <laughs> to tell Mike uh, prior to showing up here. But have no fear. Um, we're going to work through it. I'm in Mike's hands now. It's going to be good. All right. All right. See ya. Bye. Ever an optimist. We were so yeah. optimistic, too. I, of course. I'm, you know, I, I always try and maintain optimism in the face of pain and uncertainty. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it played out pretty pretty much as expected when we first went in there, right? I mean, I, I conferenced with the prosecutor, got you a good deal, so I thought. <laughs> All right. Oh, we recorded a post game too, um, so we're going to play that, and uh, this is the, our reaction. These are like reaction. These are reaction, you know. Uh, and here it is. This is after. So this is Nat X and uh, Mike are making our appearance in front of the judge. We uh, we just finished up at the court and uh, things that start, was interesting. Right, it started to go as planned. Yes, we got a we got a sweet deal, no points, no moving violation. The DA was very sympathetic to our case. Yeah, and <laughs> and, uh, and then we encountered uh, blind justice. <laughs> yes, the uh, <laughs> judge Massimo decided that. Uh, 
the <laughs> the offer from the DA was a little too generous. Yeah. He waved yes. Nat's driving record around and, was, and said to the DA, "Have you looked at this thing?" <laughs> and he goes, I mean, it was the last he just he was saying that I had just had all these violations. He said 2018, but it wasn't. The last thing I had, my DWI, was 2016. Which yes, and he goes, oh, same difference. Yeah. You know, he was like 16, 18. I said, no, it's 2016, Your Honor. Um, it didn't matter. He was very, he was incensed that I could possibly be coming before him with a, a speed trap uh, violation and uh, <laughs> demanded that... Um, Mike re-negotiated. Uh, we had to reconference the case with a different district attorney, yeah, who told me in confidence that he thought the judge was nuts for oh really for rejecting the deal, that he should have uh, taken it. And he thought he was being very harsh. I thought Matt. so too, and as did I. And um, I'm hopefully there. There was a guy, a guy that I knew from AA sitting in the back, <laughs> and uh, I wonder what he was there for. But uh, it was pretty interesting. We were uh, anyway. We got a second yeah. deal. And uh, it wasn't as good as the first one, but it's not as bad as the, the what you were charged with. So we'll take it. So that concludes our exciting evening at court, trying to fight my uh, speeding ticket. But all is well, and um, you know, see you tomorrow. Be good. <laughs> and so that that pretty much sums it up. It does. Let me tell you, when we're when I was standing there, uh, and you asked me this before we went, you're like, oh. Is this like, uh, are you getting, you know, um, is this like giving you anxiety, you know, considering my history with the court system and all of that? And the answer is yes, yes, Um, completely. I never thought I'd have to be in front of any kind of judge. You know, well, I know it was magical thinking, (laughs) but I figured never again, you know, I drive extremely carefully, you know, 99% of the time I go five under the speed limit. I'm so happy to have my driver's license back. You have no idea what a nightmare losing it for three years was so um to be there in front of that judge and when he you know you could see it in his eyes the moment right he was like he holds up the driving <laughs> record he must have printed my lifetime one which he did we tried to leave out because yeah. it's awful um and then i don't know my heart sank and i got this you know uh, i got that reaction that you know like uh, that doom feeling but we worked through it and you know um, I think it's fucked up that, uh, you know, we were talking about this, that he would, I don't know, it's like none of the work I've done to be better, none of the things that I've done to be more careful uh, have any bearing on, on this situation. It's sort of like, no, you're still a scumbag, buddy. Like, you look, look at you, <laughs> look at this. And not that he's wrong, because, yeah, it's a horrible record. It goes back all the way till when I'm 17. But I don't know. It just it, it's, it was a little demoralizing. But I had to take it in take it in stride because you know it's it's not like we went up there and gave him my story and like and look how he's turned his life around. Like you know, I considered that, but it would have been too much for um, for just a speeding ticket. I mean, it, it does sort of implicate the larger question of how long do you have to continue to pay for your past sins? Right. right? I'm continually being punished. Um, I mean, my wife thought it was appropriate for the judge to uh, wave it in my face, and she's like, "Well, yeah, your driving record is a." fucking disaster you know which was uh you know upsetting for me to hear but um you know there's some something to that like yeah all of that did happen and yes it was i don't know five six years ago um but i i just have to you know be comfortable with the fact that i have to be more careful than people who don't have a past like i do right
Um, but And look at it this way. The reason you were standing in front of a judge last night was not because you had a DWI or got caught with drugs or killed somebody. It was you got a speeding ticket. Right. Right. So had you not done that work, whether or not the judge recognizes that your life has changed or not, you know it has. Right. You know, you're there for a speeding ticket. You're not there for something. You don't have to go to probation. All you have to do is pay the fine and walk out the door and that's yeah. it. Well, and so, you know, this is the struggle, guys. You know, and Joseph Noss writes about this in his book. Uh, you know, of course, he was a registered sex offender, but living with that designation or living with your past when you're no longer that person. I right. mean, that's a whole show right yeah, there. But that's something we in recovery um, struggle with. You know, you were always, and part of how I cope with it is owning it a little bit, doing things like this podcast, reaching out to other addicts, and, you know, being out there with, you know, as many people as I can that, you know, I don't drink, which usually says enough to mm-hmm. the person you're right. communicating it to, you know, without telling your whole story. Oh, he's a guy, you know, in recovery. Don't think the judge would have made, drawn those uh, lines together, but, you know, no. he's, he's just a, he's a, He's a judge in a village court in small town Long Island, and you know he's got his own sense of the way the moral universe should work. I guess I don't know, but it wasn't all pain and suffering. Um, We had the first annual RMA Scream Park outing. Oh yeah, that seems like it was like three months ago. We've we've been spending a lot of time together. We (laughs) we have doing a lot of recovery work. Is that what that was? Yeah, that's what I call it. <laughs> Anytime you spend time with your tandem sponsor, it's recovery work. Um, so haunted houses. We went to the haunted house. There's a, the town over from us. Um, there's this an, ancient, decrepit. Um, I don't know what you call it. It's like an amusement park without rides. There's there's like a mini golf thing, and there's yeah. like a ropes course, and there's like some bumper boats. You know, it's kind of they just built it. I don't know, ten years ago. No, that thing's been there forever, dude. What? Well, because when I was a kid, it wasn't a scream park with all of that Oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying like during the rest of the year, it's uh, like this falling apart. Really? Yeah. I've just, I haven't been there in 25 years. But around Halloween, they put on haunted houses. Really? They have six of them. Really good ones, though. I mean, this is like... Over the top, there's actors. You yeah, know, they chase you around in the... It's cool. Yeah, and in it's, the cornfields. It's in a neighboring town. So, um, Ben, my son, was really into going this year. Yeah. He kept bugging me about it. And I'm like, oh, I'm thinking, I don't know. Like, you're going to be scared. We're going to go in one, and then you, like, you're not going to want to go in any of the other ones. This is my thinking before we got there. So, I bought the tickets. I asked if he wanted to go with anybody. He said, yeah, I want to go with Noah. So, you know, we got tickets... You guys too, and you and me and Ben and Noah went to Bayville to go to the haunted houses, right? We did. Seems simple, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But what happened? Well, um, interestingly, um, so my son is terrified of these things. Who knew? Um, <laughs> I mean, like unreasonably terrified. And uh, he was so nervous, and I'm like, oh, fuck, you know, like... He, he completely refused to go on the first. Here we are having a, you know, this is going to be great. You know, it's a beautiful night. And uh, and Noah was just not having it. Um, and so, you know, but the first one we went on was extremely scary. And the other ones were less scary. And so, thankfully, um, you know, he, he went on the, the next two. Um, but, uh, you, you know, your son noticed something floating through the air. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he takes a big sniff as we're walking in, and, and he goes, 
man, that's marijuana, you know? And <laughs> truly, my tru- truthfully, no. the whole place reeked of pot. Yeah. Like, I, to me, it's like, do I want to smoke something that makes me uber paranoid and then get chased around by guys with chainsaws? <laughs> like, no, but, you know, totally. that's me. Uh, and I'm like, how the hell does he know what pot smells like, yeah. you know? And then I realized it's probably from his brother. It was Father like, of the year. You know, blowing it yeah. in the... In the vents for the last, you know, three years. I mean, not lately, but, you know. But overall, it was fun. I mean, the pot smell notwithstanding. Uh, and then they had a very unique uh, treat being sold. Yes. Uh, jello shots, as many of you know. Jello shots are prepared usually with vodka. And um, and my, the kids, of course, wanted them. And uh, interestingly, <laughs> they also, which is a brilliant idea, they made non-alcoholic jello shots. Yes. And these jello shots are in giant plastic syringes that's how you <laughs> eat them it's like something you give an injection to a horse with yeah so uh so we all we ordered four uh non-alcoholic jello shots in a syringe and uh, it's quite a unique treat <laughs> it's interesting sticking the syringe in your mouth and put hitting the plunger i'd like to know the genius who thought about selling one ounce of jello in a syringe for five bucks i mean that's we should a, do that online yeah you know, that could be a rma jello shots rma jello shots non-alcoholic <laughs> in syringe in syringes yeah. it's lean into your brand um so that was a good time and then we ended up hanging out on the beach it was completely abandoned it's a really good you know north shore of long island beaches are um little rocky but they're beautiful, and it was night, and the kids were just running, running, running. Yeah, that was very nice. Because we didn't want to hang out at that park. It was super crowded with people from completely, you know, all over the island. Which <laughs> That's is a kind a, way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> from uh, Most of them were from, I think, Laurel Hollow, I think we decided. Yes, yes. And, um, and it was a lot of fun. I don't know. It was just fun to do stuff like that. It's fun to do stuff with, um, you know, the kids, and um, we didn't have to get... Wasted. That's the that's the fun part to me. Like the last few times I've been through that haunted house with my other kids, like I had had a couple of drinks before I went in, and you know, I I, I just I can't get over the appreciation and the gratitude that I have for being able to do all this stuff sober or yeah. not hungover it's because good. it just yeah. it's so much more fun. Like I I and can't believe can so many years it. I spent like just doing all this stuff. Yeah. You know, half in the bag, you know? And part of it, um, what, when we're going to get, we're actually going to try and get to this book soon. Oh, yeah. Um, but part of that book, a book, she talks about homeostasis mm. um, or equanimity in your um, pain, pleasure, your yeah. dopamine levels. And while you're actively using or drinking, you know, your your levels are all fucked up. So when you're not drinking, you don't feel any pleasure. And I, right. I think uh, many of you may remember the sensation after you've been using for a period of time, you don't enjoy the simple thing. Everything's flat. Everything's flat. You know, but now once, and it takes, the, the good doctor said, it takes about four weeks in her studies for the body yeah. to reset. And after that period of time, you start to notice that a, a warm breeze mm-hmm. makes you feel happy. But all of these things that you, you're meant to enjoy, you, you begin to enjoy again. Well, she said... Um the one sentence she said that I, that I really, I actually stopped my run this morning and I wrote it down. Uh, hedonism or the pursuit of pleasure leads to anhedonia due to the pleasure pain imbalance. Right. And anhedonia is apparently. That's the state of. The state of flatness and yeah. not being able to take pleasure in anything. 
Yeah. You know? um, with that, I, I want to just mention one more thing. We have a lot of stuff for the life update, but I think we should just... I wanted to mention uh, the Dr. Carl Hart phenomenon. I'm sorry. One more question yes. about this, because I noticed something on the bottom of this page that piqued my interest. Yes. Your brother went vegan after listening to a podcast. Okay, yeah. Can you just touch, touch on that for a minute? So, uh, in October, in my family, it's almost everyone's birthday. It's my wife, it's my mother, it's my brother, it's uh, my son, and it's my anniversary. So we always go out to dinner together to sort of knock it all out in one night. Um, Now, keep in mind, I love my brother. We're very close. Mm. Um, He's a real um, athlete guy. He's a tennis coach. Um, His son is actually a professional tennis player now and will be on the tour or is already on the tour, but he, I mean, he's a, he's a meathead. He loves his steak and hamburgers. And in any case, uh, he's like 49 years old. So we're trying to plan the night to go, all go out together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they, we picked out a nice restaurant, uh, in the neighboring town and we get back. Well, me and me and Harry are trying to uh, be vegan. Uh, so we need a place with some vegan options. And I'm just like, wait, what are you talking about? You know? Um, and then when we found out, we're like, well, what happened? So they were visiting their sons in, in Ohio, their colleges. Mm. And on the way back, they listened to podcast about, you know, uh, plant-based uh, meals. Do you and, know which one? No, I'll ask them. Find them. out, because I'm and fascinated this by has, this. you know, and they, I'm like, there's no way. But it just, you know, complicated the entire night, um, <laughs> of course, you know. And um, it was just kind of funny. And uh, but How, it, how can you nice. tell that someone's a vegan? Yeah. They'll tell you. Right. Don't worry. They'll tell it's you. So true. So yeah, that was my night. And um, my brother's an interesting character. He uh, he and I have opposing political views. Um, pretty 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 opposing. Um, we maintain you know a cordial relationship, and I just completely avoid talking about it. But what I realized about him that it's not just his political views that I disagree with. It's this insistence on absolutes. Right. Um, and I think Yoda famously said, you know, only a Sith deals in absolutes or mm. speaks in absolutes. And, um, you know, anything he's arguing or, or talking about has to be that way. And every other way is stupid or wrong. Right. Like there's no room for gray area. Um, and it just it struck me as like you can rise above all of the details of what people are arguing at and kind of just look at that concept, the concept mm-hmm. of absolutism, like this way, my way is it, and there's no other possibility. Right. And, uh, and so that kind of, you know, stuck in my head. And that's true of addiction. Um, it's, true of my, it's true of my 17-year-old presently. Right. You know, um, p- <laughs> part of this show is, I like to say, you know, we may not have all the answers, but we've got all the questions. Yes. In fact, you wanted to make that our... Uh, Catch, slogan, yeah. catchphrase, and but, put it on another T-shirt. I, I'm always <laughs> thinking in terms of T-shirts, but um, but I think that's fortunately true. our audience is not. No, I, not. I wish yeah. they were. Please buy T-shirts, please. Um, so uh, that was sort of uh, that was my week, and um, you know, there's still much more October pain to come. But first, <laughs> yeah, we need to address Dr. Carl Hart. You may, you guys may recall, uh, we did a show on Dr. Hart's book. Drug use, for drug grown-ups. use for grownups. Which, if that's not the most inaccurately titled book, you know, grownups don't actually refer to themselves as grownups, right? That's just right. FYI. That's it. Anyway, so Doctor Hart <laughs> appeared on the Dopey podcast. Some of you who listen to us may also listen to Dopey, if not most of you. Or, and if you don't, you really should because it's a great podcast. The host is a is a wonderful guy. 
uh, really helps a lot of people. Yeah, they has give helped out. me quite a bit. Yeah. I, I love his. Uh, he's got a great interviewing style, uh, and just an all around good guy. But um, so we had Doctor Hart on, and I thought that interview was a bit of a train wreck. Not Dave's fault, but no. mostly because Doctor Hart is a flaming asshole. Yeah. Um, yeah, and a lot of people sort of got that feeling from it. Um, just speaking to Dave, he, he was unsure about how he felt the interview went. Of course, I reassured him that it went really well. I thought it was, he did his best. And uh, I, you know, I enjoyed the interview. But what happened was the fallout um, was uh, insane, man. And uh, I don't know why it's important that this fantasy of um, <clears throat> the ability to recreationally use like heroin is so important to people in recovery. I don't understand um, it either. I don't know. Is it the possibility that they too could use one day casually and that somehow if this PhD comes out and maybe magically proves something that's impossible, then it's possible for them. And how dare any of us kind of say, mm, I don't think so, Dr. Hart, not so fast. Right. You sound like an addict trying to make excuses for your uh, using. I mean, a lot of the arguments he makes sound exactly like the shit I used to say right. when once I was found out and I had to try and convince my friends and family that this was okay when it so clearly wasn't. Um, well, his, his whole um, argument seems to be that if you were... S- smart enough, if you have a PhD, if right. you are, um, you know, self-aware enough, you can use drugs recreationally and you won't succumb to addiction, which I find an irresponsible um, philosophy to propound, especially on a recovery podcast or where people yeah. are looking for any straw out there to grasp onto to justify their continued use. Yeah. Uh, plus, never mind the fact that my personal view, and I'm not judging anyone else's recovery except my own, my personal view is that the end goal of all this should be not to desire to use any substances at all. Right. <laughs> because, I mean, to me, that's real recovery when you're completely free from the, from the, from the desire to use anything to, yeah. to come between you and yourself. Yeah. Right. And that's my definition of recovery. Maybe it's not everybody's. Yeah. And it sounded like he really, his life really revolved around when he can and can't use. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, he's, he likes to sit in a chair in front of the fire and snort heroin. I'm like, well, good, yeah. uh, good for you. I mean, that's, it's just highly, d- don't delude yourself into thinking that, you know, there's no risk to you of becoming addicted to heroin. Yeah. And, and, and uh, unfortunately, because in his book and what he talks about, he makes a lot of great points about things that, that don't actually prove what he eventually says. Of course. Is there racism in the criminal justice system? Yes. Is there racism in the way we treat addiction? Yes. So this is... Is there privilege? Yes. Of course. So this is very confusing to people in recovery out there. Even people who work in recovery, I found, are very confused by his message. Because, you know, it's very convoluted. And my point was, look, all of those great points he makes in his book do not add up to, you know... Using drugs casually is like something you should, you know, aspire, aspire to, to something mm-hmm. that's possible for you. You know, like, is it maybe possible for someone to like maybe do this? Like, yeah, sure. Anything's possible. Highly unlikely and probably not for you. And I wouldn't even waste my time trying to figure out how to live like Dr. Carl Hart because it ain't happening. Plus, I mean, shit, there's so much else to do out there. Yeah. You know, like, why just? And sit around and because it doesn't sound like he's really like 
Well, I don't know. I don't know, Dr. Hart, right? But the whole idea of sitting around by yourself in your living room snorting heroin sounds an awful lot like, it's like addiction I, to me. <laughs> I love, that was what I love. You know? And so, um, in any case, that, that's the final thing I want to say on this. Um, I was very shocked uh, by some of the reactions, but I just really have to stop engaging because clearly people are very emotionally invested in um, the possibility that they could one day be a PhD, receiving research-grade heroin, right. and enjoying it with his wife. Doc, uh, and, as, and having MDA once in a while. Or as like, Dr. Hart says, I only want the good shit. Right. He right? doesn't want to be judged by so, dorks. Yeah. So that's anyway. all. We are going to put Dr. Hart to rest. And with that, move on. Yes. Can we take a short break and I be w- back after these words? Yes. Okay. And we're back. Hello. Now we're going to get started with the real meat and potatoes, or vegan sausage and potatoes, of of today's show. We are going to discuss the recently released book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, by Dr. Anna Lemke. That's L-E-M-B-K-E. Who is Dr. Lemke, you might ask? Mm. She is the medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University. Mm. That seems like a pretty good title, right? Pretty fancy. Yeah. She's also chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine and Dual Diagnosis Clinic. You know what dual diagnosis is? What does it mean? Dual diagnosis is when you have an addiction diagnosis as well as an underlying mental health condition. Ah, co-occurring. Co-occurring. Something. Something. Mm. So, Dopamine Nation is a book that she put out. She put out another book a couple of years ago called um, Dr. Dealer or Physician. Oh, Dr. Dealer? Doc, it was about the opioid crisis and doctors pres- over-prescribing opioid medication. I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. Yep. Since I... Anyway, uh, in Dopamine Nation, anyway, Dr. Lemke, uh, who, who is a psychiatrist by training, uh, she explores the exciting new scientific discoveries that explain why the relentless pursuit of pleasure leads eventually to pain and what to do about it. Um, condensing complex neuroscience into an easy-to-understand metaphors, Lemke illustrates how finding contentment and connectedness means keeping dopamine in check. The lived experience of, of her patients or the, the gripping fabric of her narrative. You know, speaking of gripping fabric, uh, yeah. I'm thinking of her, the first case, which is that guy who built this crazy masturbation machine <laughs> and, and used a, um, a record player with a piece of fabric yeah. inside a cone that he would stick his, his penis into. Yeah. And then when the record player moved around, it would move the uh, it's amazing. thing I've... up and down on his penis. And, and that's what happens when you, when you have a background in science and you become addicted to <laughs> yeah. sex. Anyway, um, their the riveting stories of suffering and redemption give us all hope for managing our consumption and transforming our lives. Yeah, that, that guy come, can do it. Did this come out by her, her, her publisher? Yeah. In essence, Dopamine Nation shows us that the secret to finding balance yeah. is combining the science of desire with the wisdom of recovery. What are your book today? <laughs> Preferably through the link that we're going to throw up uh, on, in the show notes where you can go to our Amazon affiliate and buy it there and it throws us a couple of pennies, literally a couple of pennies. But Yeah, um, I, so this book is really, really, really an interesting angle on just addiction in general. And she brings up these things. Uh, it's all in the context of how dopamine affects you and your happiness and the things that affect uh, dopamine 
and a lot of the easy access to everything kind of culture, including your Facebooks and right um, the Google and, machine, and um, well, and she and she actually says that there is not a whole lot of difference physiologically between an addiction to a drug or a chemical and an addiction to a process or um, you know, something else like sex right, something or that gambling. Spikes your right. dopamine. And it's exactly. all about upsetting the uh, the dopamine uh, homeostasis. It looks uh, the same in the brain. The pain pleasure balance. Because when you do things that spike your dopamine, you know, things like sex, I think um, it's not the same as let's say methamphetamine because right. Uh, methamphetamine, and there are statistics for this with actual, you know, like how much it spikes it, but it's something like 40,000. Yeah. yeah, it it spikes it like a thousand percent over what your brain threshold is. Right. You know, everybody has, you know, naturally there's a threshold in your brain. And, Which is different you know, for different people. Right. Your baseline dopamine levels may be radically different from mine. Yeah. Maybe radically different from somebody else. Right. So everybody's different. And like when you see a sunrise or when you watch your child do something that you're proud of, typically, you know, your dopamine will spike up to that limit mm-hmm. where you feel good. Now, using something like cocaine or heroin, it breaks through that barrier. Right. And then, therefore, upsetting that balance. And, uh, and that sort of thing leads to craving. It leads to compulsion. And, uh, and it can be experienced in, with any number of activities like gambling. But... You know, you might say, well, what does gambling have to do with me? You know, I'm a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. It's It all comes down. And sometimes focusing too much on this specific addiction can cloud, you know, the process of what's really going on in your brain. And I think this book allows us to kind of look at addiction of everything and, and therefore maybe have a, a better approach to how we can then treat it. Yes, um, I think... One interesting concept that she posited along those lines was the fact that because everyone's baseline dopamine is different, uh, the key that will fit into your lock this, the, the, to determine what sort of thing you become you can become addicted to is different for different people, which mm. is why you have some people becoming addicted to sex or uh, gambling or, in Dr. Lemke's case, uh, steamy romance novels, yeah. Or in the case of Doctor Gabor Mate, uh, buying classical music CDs. Yeah, she makes the same points. I think that Gabor Mate makes about right. You know, when he's trying to commiserate with his addic- addicted uh, patients and uh, and readers, he's saying like, you know, I understand. I may not be uh, addicted to heroin, but hey, I've got this problem with you know. She had a problem with reading too many steamy you know, romance novels and the fact that it began to interfere with her life. Mm-hmm. She said in every free moment she had, she was reading another romance novel and, and taking time away from her kids. And it started to have those same effects that maybe drug use has on some people. Well, and she started with bad um, vampire romance fiction <laughs> and she ended up in Fifty Shades of Grey with like anal butt plugs. That yeah. She said, you know, so it's definitely like she had to ratchet it up because the 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 dopamine release that she was getting reading the the earlier stuff was she needed more and more titillation right 
till she got to the point, you know, and uh, and that was very interesting because she went into a, a, an analysis of how she would only read up to like the cl- the climax of the scene, and then after that, like throw the book down and get another one and read up to you know, and you know, you could you can laugh and you could laugh and say Dr. Gabor Mate's like addiction to buying classical music CDs isn't a real addiction, and the romance novel isn't a real addiction, but what is addiction, right? It's 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 repetitive behavior that has a negative effect on your life that and you can't stop that you can't stop, and and in both of those process cases, I mean, it certainly fits within that definition. Yeah, it you does. Know. The same is thing it is dis- happening. Is it, in the brain. is it as self destructive as being addicted to methamphetamine? Probably not, right? But but it, the brain is is doing the same thing. It's um, yeah. it's all this chase for dopamine. So I mean, with repeated exposure, right, to the same thing, whether it be romance novels or using drugs or drinking, um, you know, the high that you get lasts less and less because your tolerance builds up more and more because you, your dopamine um, you know, receptors, they can only squeeze so much out. And uh, um, so you get that boomerang effect, right? Like mm-hmm. for every you know, dose of dopamine that you get, there is a equal and opposite reaction in the other direction where, you're, where you're, you're, your dopamine system tries to maintain homeostasis mm. by lowering the amount of dopamine that's released in the aftermath of you doing whatever it is, the addictive behavior. Right. right. With repeated exposure to the same stimulus, the high lasts less and the pain reaction increases in intensity and duration. That's exactly what I was trying to say inartfully. N- neuroadaptation or tolerance. Uh, with repetition, we need more of our drug of choice for the same effect. I think we yes. all experienced that. Um, People who have chemical addictions are, are well acquainted with the the, the realization that at some point the drug that you're using doesn't get you high right. anymore. It just I'm, gets you normal. Yeah. How many times have, have we heard that? You know, I don't use to get high. I'm I just trying to feel, feel normal. I mean, exposure to opioids caused the pain to reset its pleasure pain balance to the side of pain. Right. Um, so now the original pain that you were taking the opioid for is now worse. And mm-hmm. some people report to even have pain in other parts of the body they didn't before after prolonged opioid use. That was fascinating that the use of opioids for pain eventually has the exact opposite uh, effect. Everything hurts more. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, there's actually a word for it. Explanation point. Uh, The phenomenon is called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Algesia from the Greek algesis, which means sensitivity to pain. Algesis, my hip hurts. Algesis. (laughs) Yeah. That was awful. Um, The patients are increasing and using opiates that are stronger and stronger. The pain side of the equation is getting worse. And uh, when the drugs stop working, you know, like we just said, you normally take what you would normally get high, but now it's just uh, making you feel normal. Uh, Dr. George Kube referred to this as dysphoria-driven relapse, which is when, after a prolonged period of abstinence, your body still hasn't reset, and that that makes you seek out the right. drug. You're or just the back thing. to where you were when you stopped, right? It's right. Like you picked up right where you left it's off. It's not a physical craving; it's that psychological craving, and um, and that's from the dysphoria that's created while your body is resetting. Dysphoria, but uh, isn't driven the, relapse. But isn't the but doesn't the body reset the dopamine imbalance eventually? Yeah, I mean that that's why weeks, her said. recommendation is. Yep abstinence has to be the first place you start, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that so, that's where she's always tries to get her patients to kind of go right. along with. I'm like, just a little unclear how like this, 
what do you call it, dysphoria-driven relapse squares with the idea that you can reset your receptors. Because then shouldn't you be back to normal, to baseline? So in, in the period of time between when you s- cease the activity and when you are um, reset, there's a period of time where dysphoria... Oh, okay. It, that's I get when it. it happens. And how many of us have gone so through that? So could this be for years in some cases? Because um, you said it, it starts to reset in four weeks. Yeah. Um, what about? I, I bet you it can, but I think what she was saying was you need to get like at least a month yeah, to yeah. start to get that physical relax. But, you know, there's still, and she also says that, you know, and, and I've, I've said this a million times, you can't just take a pill to, to stop being an addict. You know, you've got to do, even though you're doing medicated assistant treatment, you need to do the inner work. And that's what she says. Like without all of the new insight that you get from doing the work, you're still not uh, equipped to treat your anxiety, right? You know, with a healthy behavior, you know, because your neural pathways still go right back to that thing you always did when you got stressed, smoke a cigarette or whatever. See, I get the sense that, and I don't know if it came up specifically in the book, but I got the sense that she would not really be in favor of using medically assisted treatment because, from her perspective, the only way you're going to get rid of the craving is to reset the dopamine. Balance, right? And, she, she and anything like a, a anything like naltrexone or something that's going to sort of put a chemical block in, yeah, there is maybe not. Yeah, she talks. Did about she talk that. about it? I yeah, don't she remember. calls that. Um, you know, uh, it was something about a blockade, but she talks about that. And her point is that these things are helpful to getting to abstinence. Okay, that's now I remember. She right. talked about it during the self binding. That's. That's it. Okay. Self-binding is okay. the, the phrase she uses for when we do things like take a prophylactic, like, um, you know, antibuse right. or naltrexone. So it's something outside or even as simple as locking the liquor in a liquor cabinet. Right. That's self-binding. It's putting things in between yourself and your drug of choice or behavior of choice. Mm-hmm. And so that's self-binding. And she talks a little bit about that. So, so wouldn't like a geographic... Pulling a geographic, as they call it in AA, wouldn't isn't that an example of self-binding, where you take yourself out of the environment that the drug yeah. exists in and put yourself in a new environment? Yeah, and I think or as for, you or as you said the yeah. other day, which was like a light bulb going on in my head, you were like, well, "Rehab is is a geographic." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're taking yourself out of your normal scenario. You're going to fantasy land. I mean, I believe in rehab. I'm not gonna. I'm not saying against it, but. It, the truth is you need to be prepared to come back to your life mm. um, as it is. I mean, there's certain things you can do permanently, like what I did, change my phone number so all of my dealers can't get in touch with me. But I still have to live my life. I still have my family. I still have my job. Like, um, I need to learn the tools to uh, soothe myself and to be happy without going back to the to the using. So you have to come up with a something else, some other tools to, to satisfy. So self-binding will anxiety. help you get to the abstinence, yeah, right? But, and then help you maintain the abstinence. Right. But she also says that this doesn't always work. And, and right. she uses gastric bypass surgery as an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because I like how she connects all of these uh, impulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's not confusing. It's actually unifying uh, in the way that she talks about it. It sort of helps us to understand. But... You know, so uh, it's just another, I think a lot of this is she's trying to get us to, to look at all of these ways that are very popular to help affect um, sobriety, 
but she's helping us navigate like this is good, but it has to be done with this, you know, right. and, and, uh, and so she lays it out um, pretty clearly, I thought. Um, so, so, the, so the first thing that she says about, um, you know, the ways to, to reset your, your dopamine system is that you have to, abstinence has to be the first thing. Right. And that's sort of kind of that kind of clashes a little bit with the current thinking, um, you know, in, in, in addiction research about how maybe abstinence is not the goal for every for every addict or every person with a substance abuse disorder. Maybe maybe abstinence is is just not achievable for some people. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where I come down. I, I mean, for me, I know abstinence is the only way that I yeah. am able to recover. She makes some interesting points toward the end of the book that I, uh, that I thought were interesting. I think she, she's, she's also saying that the abstinent, like she even said that studies show, and I put it in quotes because I'm like, what studies, you mm. know, uh, that there are people who do return to moderate use. Yeah. Um, and that, she, so her theory is that this abstinence period is required before you can even move on to a healthy... It's a, it's a predicate step before you can do yeah. anything else. So she's not... That's what she recommends to her yeah. patients. Yes. Four weeks. You know, patients come in and it's like, you need to give me four weeks of abstinence. Uh, you're going to have withdrawal no matter what it is. Whether it's a physical withdrawal or a mental withdrawal, the first two weeks are going to suck. And then two weeks after that, you're going to start to you know, level off and your dopamine levels may return to normal, which, you know, 30 days... You know, everybody says that, you know, why is rehab magically made 30 days? Well, that's the amount that insurance will reimburse for. But it seems like maybe there's a method to that madness. And that particular time period is supported physiologically by the amount of time it takes your brain to sort of start to re-equalize your your dopamine. She actually says self-binding creates literal and metacognitive space between desire and consumption yes. a modern necessity on our dopamine saturated world um she says that medications can restore homeostasis but consider what we lose by medicating away our pain and that was another point she makes when she's talking about uh, naltrexone or vivitrol that it it is really great and it does help a lot but some patients report they don't uh they don't appreciate bacon as much or they didn't cry at their mother's funeral and, right. and things like that so she's also trying to be aware of like what do we lose when we're flattening out our reward because that's what naltrexone does it stops your reward from hitting you know the uh, the happy spot basically. so does naltrexone work on dopamine I think that's, yeah, it keeps the dopamine from, you know, you don't get that same dopamine reward from alcohol. And so you don't also get the the low that comes with it. Right. You're just basically level. Right. But how does that affect the rest of your experiences? Some people say they didn't enjoy a hot shower like they used to. And I'm like, well, what's more important to you right now? So that's interesting because the, if the idea is to bring your dopamine level into homeostasis, in theory, naltrexone does that chemically mm -hmm. but people report anhedonia when their dopamine levels are flat and so it, you do need some dopamine spikes right like yeah some of them that occur from seeing a sunset from you know yeah. hugging your your kids or whatever you know mm -hmm. so that's that sort of dopamine change right in your levels is okay Right. It's just the one that you get from your addictive behavior just keeps jerking the levels up so high and falling so low that it's not sustainable. 
Right. right? And, and she even says that the, the solution for one of her patients who was doing well on the naltrexone, but was reporting, you know, they didn't enjoy anything else as much as they did. They actually moved to the Sinclair method. So what, what they did oh, yeah. was, which instead of being on naltrexone or Vivitrol, you know, the, the whole time, actually Vivitrol is the shot, naltrexone mm-hmm. is the pill. You only take the, the pill an hour before you plan to drink. Right. And then it has that effect of pharmacological extinction on your brain, which, you know, because you don't get that same reward when you drink because of the naltrexone, the next time you would normally be craving alcohol, you don't crave it as much because your brain doesn't remember that reward anymore. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's another aspect of self-binding, but it's chemical self-binding. Yeah, that's um, an interesting approach. I think. Yeah, and uh, she also talked about sub-blockade, which is a new, like, uh, it's some kind of implant that releases Suboxin, uh-huh. um, which lasts for a month. Uh, and so the same problems, but you have to look at, you know, cost-benefit analysis. Like, um, I don't want to, you know, drive to the Bronx to try and cop heroin every day mm. um, to maintain feeling okay, and so therefore you go on Suboxone. So if a month after being on Suboxone, uh, you know, you start to realize that, you know, bacon doesn't give you the same dopamine hit that it used to. Is that really a problem? You know, you Depends have on to, how much you like bacon. Well, that's the thing. It, everybody is it's a different. choice, right? Um, and then so she's just laying out all of these different uh, possibilities. So what does she have to say about hitting rock bottom? I thought that was kind of an interesting interesting little business there. It's interesting that she, she gets real scientific for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then she comes out with these like opinions. Yes, you know what yes. I mean. So she's <laughs> she's definitely a pro twelve uh, step in AA. Yeah, she is, but um, she also disagrees with a lot of what uh, we've commonly hear in twelve step groups. I thought was super. I was surprised and I thought it was interesting. One of the points she makes is uh, she says again, studies show, which I'm sure they're cited in the book. I hope, but. She says that um, this idea that you must hit a bottom mm-hmm. in order to recover is nonsense. Not only is it nonsense, it's harmful it's to perpetuate. It's yes. destructive. And it, uh, and it leads to some of the abuse that we've seen over the years in recovery, mm-hmm. such as, as uh, uh, Aaron Moore from Get Smart uh, talks about uh, her experience with Synanon. Right. Um, and that they would try and, quote, raise your bottom. What does that mean? It means they, you know, scream at you. They destroy you, kind of like military. Yeah, they break your confidence. They, you know. Right. And so they, they make your life way more miserable than it actually was to make you like, okay, fine. I Now I definitely need to get clean. And she's saying, no, this is not okay. Not only that, but uh, more studies show uh, that people who try and get sober from a higher bottom people who haven't already lost everything mm-hmm. actually have a better shot of course of staying sober in other words they don't need to be their lives don't need to be made a million times worse in order for them to be successful right so and and that's another thing that kind of goes against this common wisdom right well if you if you consider that um, something like alcoholism is a progressive disease that will invariably end up in with you in a uh, dead or in jail or in an institution then um, why wouldn't you want to arrest it before those things happen? Right. Right? Like, what are you waiting for? What what more has to happen? And yet, and yet, um, you know, people who have, um, who are on the lighter spectrum of alcohol use disorder who go into an AA meeting and are told maybe they just, 
maybe they're just not ready. Maybe they haven't had enough tr- drinks yet, or you know, yeah. maybe they're not done. You're not a you real know. alcoholic. Um, you know, and that drives people away from recovery. You know, yeah. who ordinarily could probably use it, who are miserable enough as it is, and and don't need to go out and accumulate more misery before they recover. Yeah, I mean, I had that experience of when I first went into AA. You or NA, you're like, man, I do not, I am not like these people. Right. Uh, a lot of people report that, even people who are like those people, yes. you still feel like, man, I ain't that bad. Right. Because you and, look for differentiation rather than similarities between it, you. Right. And that's what. Uh, it's part of rationalization. A good sponsor would tell you, look for the similarities, don't mm-hmm. look for the differences. Um, and uh, And I think that what this naked mind has done, and hopefully this podcast as well, is kind of raise the awareness that. You know, maybe maybe getting sober, even if you're not living under a bridge, is a great idea. Maybe it's a healthy idea. Maybe it'll improve your life. Even and, if you're just yeah. drinking four times a week, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you don't want to do it anymore. You yeah. know, you don't have to wait, you know. Uh, so I agree with Dr. Lemke on that. I mean... Yeah, she's, she talks yeah. a lot about, you know, some of the misuses of... Um, in, in, in 12-step and traditional programs. She also talks about shame. 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 Shame, shame. Shame. Um, um, she uses some words I never heard before. Well, pro-social shame would yeah. be the one. What right? is that? Um, I don't understand it. Well, pro-social shame is shame that motivates you to change your behavior for the good. Pro-social is like a good shame? It's a good shame. Okay. Yeah. Um, but she also goes, okay, so her... Shame is an emotion that is distinct from guilt, right? Shame makes us feel bad about ourselves uh, as people, while guilt makes us feel bad about our actions, uh, while you still can preserve a positive sense of self, which sort of harkens back to our last uh, episode on um, the 12 things, right? Yeah. Um, Shame is considered maladaptive emotion, but guilt is an adaptive emotion. Uh, Lemke says that these two things are identical, Um, but... um, so, for example, the shame that she finds to be positive is, say, you are in Alcoholics Anonymous or another 12-step group. And some, just a quick diversion on that. These groups have something which she calls club goods. Mm-hmm. What club goods are is like the benefits that you derive from the group. Um, you know, um, psychological benefits, physical benefits, relationships, that sort of thing. It's like the guy who chairs my meeting, you know, gets some of the guy's jobs at his construction company. Yeah, yeah. And things like right. that. So um, one of the things that increases club goods in recovery is something called pro-social shame. So you go into a into an AA meeting and um, you don't want to relapse because if you do, you'll experience like a, a certain amount of shame. You're going to have to get a, right. a white chip and you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to start over. So she talks about the case of one of her patients who was sober for, um, I don't know, it was like five years. And then she went to Europe and accidentally drank an alcoholic drink that had 0.05%. She kinda, said it was as much as an NA beer. NA beer here. Went back and told her sponsor and her sponsor told her that he Started she had to days. reset her counter yeah. over again. And so one of the, and, and which she did, and she's been sober ever since. So, so that's an example of pro-social shaming. You know, this, and the sponsor's like, no, you got to reset. You got to go back to day that's one. That's a straight power flex by a sponsor, <laughs> by the way. That is bullshit. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I tend to think that that's a little ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Total bullshit. You know, but the way that this, that her patient chose to internalize it was, she said, you know, maybe he made the right call because maybe I was giving myself an out. I was in Europe and I had something that I might've known had alcohol in it. But here's what, you know? here's the, what 
you know, can happen though in that scenario. You, you, you come to your sponsor whom you trust, you're struggling with this idea like, oh my God, I accidentally drank a little bit of maybe something alcoholic, you know, um, you know, I just wanted to tell you, I wanted to be honest. And then they say, everything you did, you start over. Right. That has a, an effect. Luckily for her, it didn't have this effect where that person then says, well, fuck this. Right. If I, if I relapse, I'm going back out. Mm-hmm. And then that's I'm it. I'm going to really they, have a drink. And that's that's actually what happens, it a, happens lot to a lot of the time. I've seen sure. it and seen it and seen it. So, but part of the reasoning I, uh, that she says is that that groups like AA do that sort of thing is to sort of increase the the value of the club goods because you don't want to be seen as like a free rider. That's, right. that's a term she uses. Um, there are people who attempt to benefit from the group without sufficient participation in the community, right? I remember feeling that so, way. Um, yeah. So uh, those are the folks that just show up and sit in the back and don't stop drinking and just yeah. sort of eat the free cookies, drink the coffee, and enjoy the fellowship without putting the work in. They right? come late and leave early. Um, you know, I was one of those people who was annoyed by people like that because <laughs> I would go to these, I would go to the meetings with my sponsor early. I would help set up the coffee. Nobody, I didn't have an official job from the business uh, that department or whatever. Right. Um, I would just take the guy, you know, but I liked that. It made me feel good. But when mm-hmm. I would see people just come in and then like leave, I'd be like, you know. They're I, not making the coffee. We do that in church too, right. although I wasn't going to talk about church this week. But you know, the people. <laughs> so our, a listener took us to task yeah. for too much religion. Yeah, I'm sorry. Week. It's just it's <laughs> part of our life. We go to church. Yeah. In any case, but it's the same thing. You know, you always hear the priest or the. Uh, the pastor when it, on a holiday like the, yeah. the Christmas Day seat warmers or whatever. Right, like, right. where are you the rest of the year? Yeah, what have you yeah, done? Yeah. You know, but it's that same. That's those club goods. That's that feeling. Right. Um, interesting. Uh, it is interesting, but doesn't that sort of uh, fly in the face of the the AA? Uh, the only requirements are uh, for membership or desire to stop drinking. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the thinking is, you know, you put that out there as the as the warm welcoming slogan. And then eventually if you stay, stay for too long without sobering up, you get thrown out. When I'm realizing how that works, what I'm realizing is there isn't a lot of thinking that goes into it. It's just sort of things that evolved because of, you know, usage over time, you know, and now when we step back and look at it, this is why it looks like uh, it's incongruent. It's incongruent because (laughs) it is, um, most of the time. So, um, you know, so she talks a lot about that now, uh, she also, you know, gives us like how she deals with um, addictive patients, you know, obsessive mm-hmm. compulsive. She calls it um, obsessive consumption disorders. Yeah. Right. So she's uh, differentiating, um, you know, drugs and like eating, but unifying it in this that it's obsessive consumption. And well, so- she says before you get into that, I'll just say she says that from an evolutionary standpoint, our brains are not designed to be able to successfully navigate a world of overabundance and stimulation, right? Okay, so yeah. overabundance and every stimulation of every sort from drugs to, you know, social media to, you know, all that stuff. So, Ease of access. Yeah, um, right. Man, there's so much more we can get to on this book. She makes a lot of great points. Um, she, she does some discussion about um, the way the world is now and how it is more it's more likely that we will, you know, have one of these obsessive consumption disorders Mm -hmm. because of the ease of access. And she talks about, you know, the fact that 
she could just pick up her Kindle and download that book. Like when she started her obsession with um, vampire romance novels, she was buying a book. She had to go to the library or whatever, right. bookstore, and it put some space between her and the activity. Now, once she got the Kindle, mm-hmm. um, and it was just, you could get it, and it was even free most of the time. Now she was doing it all the time, but... Um, we're starting to see that uh, in the debate over marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the debate is, oh, it's just marijuana. What's the big deal? Um, should it be legal? Should it? Could people have access to it? And the answer is, I mean, that's what we're doing. I don't know what the answer is. But the problem is more people will try it. They will. Because it's some so subset of them will, will become addicted to um, it. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, the, look at what happened with alcohol with ease of access. I mean, it's alcohol is a nightmare uh, globally because of the ease of access. So, well, she and she she actually goes back to um, looking at some of the statistics around prohibition and how uh, prohibition, while it created its own set of of problems with criminal behavior, criminal activity, mafia, and so on. Uh, also, on the flip side, the deaths from alcohol related disease in this country plummeted. Uh, over the course of prohibition, yes. so there isn't, an, and lasted until the 1950s. So, th- so there is an argument to be made that restricting access to these drugs yeah. is a is a, a good thing for society as a whole. The problem is the crim- the criminality that slips in on the backside from yeah. having uh, black markets and so forth. So, well, we slipping in through the backside. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting point. Um, and I've been sort of going back and forth over this uh, mm-hmm. over time because I used to think I was like libertarian, like stay out of my bedroom, stay out of my life. Right. Um, everything should be legal, you know. But the reality of it is, you know, there, there's examples I've heard of in other countries that they legalize everything and it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, in our country, I think it was Portland right. where they basically decriminalized yeah. narcotics. But I mean, there's a way to do it. Right. Well, and there's a way to do it poorly, right? Right. So So it's hard not to look at what's happened before because, I mean, maybe it was done poorly, but we have to learn from these experiences and we have to continue to study these things so we can make the right decisions because I still don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that, um, you know, pot will be available at your local drive through McDonald's pretty soon type of thing, (laughs) you know. um, But even Dr. Lemke says that... um, criminalizing addiction is not the, the answer, right? So you, you you can legalize the drugs, but if you're going to do that, you also better change the criminal justice system yeah. to not treat people who become addicted to these legal things as criminals. Right, you know? right. So anyway, that's uh, it's a very complicated... Um, it's very complicated, and it takes a person like Dr. Lemke with a different... You know, she takes her scientific discipline and her, you know, experiential... Um, experience or what she what she did with her patients uh to sort of um kind of clear the picture for us she also maybe we should do the things to take away um one thing i wanted to bring up uh before we uh move on was she she creates an acronym out of the word dopamine um and as she considers this a checklist, this is what she goes over with her patients. So when she is about to train, I thought this was interesting because I've always wanted to be a therapist or um is she's got someone in her office who has a, an obsessive use disorder like pot or like she talks about. And so the way she approaches it is dopamine. The D is for data. She just asks questions about the using. You know, how does she do it? How often mm-hmm. does she do it? 
um, objectives for using. That's the O in dopamine. What do you hope to get out of it? Right. Yeah. The P in uh, dopamine is you're using reasons for uh, consuming it, The thing, like what problems you have, and also the problems it is creating. Mm-hmm. Then the A is abstinence. This is where she suggests uh, carefully that the uh, patient abstain to lay off for a month. Um, you know, because... Like in the, in the case of her one patient who was uh, addicted to marijuana, basically, she was saying she was using it to treat her anxiety. Right. But Dr. Lemke posited that, you know, maybe initially it did help that anxiety. But now, since you're smoking so much, you're, you're getting anxiety from withdrawing from THC. Right. Which is... A known fact. That's what happens. That's that's the only place where I, I have a little bit of an issue with with what she's proposing because if you could stop like that, because a psychiatrist says you have to stop for a month, then boy, addiction would be really easy to treat, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and that's where some of the self the, the binding, I guess, comes in. Yeah. You know, if she can get a patient to try that, then she's like, great, great. You know, yeah. I don't have but to I mean, how ma- how many of the patients she treats? in her dual diagnosis clinic and, you know, in the regular Stanford uh, 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 hospital, like are able to just quit for a month. That's a great question. We should get Dr. Lemke on the show. It seems like authors are coming to see us. They are coming to see Um, us. The next thing she will recommend mindfulness and the M in dopamine is mindfulness, Mm. prayer and meditation, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. And she, she does say that she does not recommend prayer to all of her patients because this is highly unusual and maybe yes. not appropriate. But right. when she does have um, a relationship with the patient and knows they're religious, uh, she will uh, recommend mindfulness. The I in dopamine is insight. So once you do try these new practices, okay, let's look, let's look back on it. Let's, uh, let's yeah. analyze. What did data. you get out of it? What happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and then next steps is the N in dopamine. Uh, now what? Um, you know, using your new insight, some people she says, this is where she says, some people do return to their drug of choice and use, you know, recreationally. Mm. She actually says this. So, I don't know. I'm dubious of that, but uh, she is the doctor here. Maybe it is possible. I mean, Dr. Hart would argue I mean, it's her possible. and Dr. Hart should have lunch. Yeah. So, um, like I said, and the E is for experiment. Uh, you get back into, and this is also, this also parallels the, the hero's journey. Right. Coming back Take with the your new knowledge. Yeah. Yes. Well, is, she actually says that... Um, People in recovery are the new, um, she didn't say shamans, but it was something along those lines, like the um, prophets. Right. She said that people who are in recovery are the prophets of of the dopamine nation. I love this. I love this. But it's that hero's journey that we all go through. And it's it's right here. You come back with your new knowledge. You come back knowing the force with your lightsaber and you bring it to the people. Um, Yeah. That's how, lo- dopamine. how long do you think, do you think she just squeezed that when she was writing the book, she just said, I'm going to lay out the, <laughs> the letters of dopamine and find something that fits. You know what this needs? An acronym. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because those kind of books, people like that in the acronym. Love acronyms. I don't know. Do we need to do the takeaways? Cause we kind of like, um, well, okay. So anyway, at the end of the book, uh, Dr. Lemke summarizes basically the takeaways. And since she wrote them down one through seven, why don't we just give them to the people? Okay. So, Number one is a relentless pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain leads to pain because of the way the dopamine balance and imbalance works, right? Uh, Recovery begins with abstinence is number two, which we've discussed, right? You got to stop to to re, you call it, 
yeah. achieve homeostasis. Right. I, I owe a lot of my current success to a long period of, you know, the abstinence got me where I was going. Abstinence, this is number three, resets the brain's reward pathway and with it our capacity to take joy in simpler pleasures. We just basically said that too. Self-binding creates literal and metacognitive space between desire and consumption, a modern necessity on our dopamine-saturated world. Hmm. Right? Uh, What's self-binding again? That's when you're stopping yourself from using somehow. Like I used to have this thing. It was a... uh, a Lucite box with a timer on the top and I could put my kid's phone in it and then crank the top and it would lock That's beautiful. batteries and you couldn't open it until the timer went off. I love that. Yeah. It would drive my son insane. Yeah, my, my older son took a hammer to it. But um, Medications can restore homeostasis but consider what we lose by medicating away our pain. Right, we talked about that a little. Um, pressing on the pain side resets our balance to the side of pleasure. We didn't discuss that so much but it's in the book so you guys can read it. Yeah. Um, and beware of getting addicted to pain Right, is the last one. So right. One of the examples she uses is someone who does cold ice water baths and yeah. how, you know, putting yourself through pain for like a, a period of time, you know, it upsets the balance. And when you stop, you get that pleasure. Like but, why, pain, but pain yeah. can also increase your dopamine levels. Right. So, yeah. so you won't catch me sitting in an ice bath, but... You know, some people. Well, that's what you're running. Get off on is. that. You're torturing yourself until uh, you get dopamine. You are correct, right? I'm a dopamine junkie. All right, uh, are we done with Dr. Lemke? I think. I think yeah, that should wrap it up. That's all we have on this book. I mean, we could do a couple shows. I don't think we will. But no. um, please write us at Mike R at MiddleAgesRecovery.com. Tell us what you think. Um, yeah. What is your opinion of this book? Uh, I, I got a lot out of it, and miraculously, the books that we've been doing lately seem to all be working together. Yeah. And in fact, there's Some another book. symbiosis, yeah, synthesis. There's actually a book club on the private group that, um, that the grant started, and we're reading. Um, he's picked out a book. I've actually started reading it, and I can't remember what it's called. Um, but that's going to be a lot of fun. So join the, um, join the Facebook group. It's private. Um, if you're on the main Facebook page, that is public. Make sure you're like on the private group. And uh, the, the book is Unbroken Brain by Maya Zalovitz. Yes, that is and, the RMA uh, book club that is coming up, I think, on October 28th. Yes, the, I, uh, I will post the Zoom link in the show notes, or am I going to leave that on? No, I will come join the, the Facebook yeah. club and it, it's posted in there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's free and we just have fun and support each other's recovery. So come on down. Right. Uh, and with that, it's time for recovery in the news. <laughs> you got some new fans for your motherfucker. I know yeah, some postings in the Facebook group. Can uh, I tell you guys that I am such? Um, I, I'm so happy that people are enjoying my what did I say? My musical insanity. So uh, if, regular if, Scatman Crothers. Love it. Here. I love it. Scooby Doo. Uh, recovering the news uh, from NPR this week. Um, an article on their website. Although I, I saw it in a old-fashioned newspaper as well. Uh, In the quest for a liver transplant, patients are segregated by prior alcohol use. Mm. Mm. Interesting, right? 
makes sense. Um, the article tells this tale of uh, Brian uh, Gorsney, who planned to check into a rehab for his alcohol use, but the night before, he started vomiting blood. Uh, when he arrived at the rehab facility in North Kansas City, Missouri, they sent him directly to the hospital where he was diagnosed with severe alcoholic hepatitis. Uh, he'd been drinking heavily on and off for years, and by February of 2020, he was having as many as a dozen drinks a day. He was told that his only chance of survival was a liver transplant, uh, and his family said, well, let's go ahead and do it. But the doctors told him he was not eligible for a transplant because he hadn't been six months sober. It is apparently a widely enforced waiting period, um, but is it justified is the question of the article. In the U.S., a widespread clinical practice requires patients with alcoholic liver disease to complete a period of sobriety before they can get on the waiting list for a liver. The informal policy, often called the six-month rule, can be traced to the 1980s when the thinking was then, and among people who still believe this now, uh, that six months of abstinence gives a patient's liver time to heal and thus avoid a transplant. And if that didn't work, the patient would at least have pro- proven that they can stay sober and would not return to drinking after a transplant. Mm. What yeah. do you think? I, I, I Should we see the save logic. the livers only for the uh, non-alcoholics? Here's what I think the, uh, the logic is. I th- they probably think that, you know, because livers are extremely hard to come by. Everybody's familiar with long waiting, you know, and mm-hmm. there's that whole global black market for organs and it's, it's, it's a disaster. It's very hard to get a liver. So when you've got a person who is, you know, and has alcoholic induced liver disease, I think what they want to see is, you know, stop drinking and let's see if maybe you don't need a transplant Mm. or like, let's see, you know, how much better you can get because you're continually volunteer, you know, putting poison in your liver, you know, maybe, you know, we're not just going to, try and like support a behavior you know what i mean it's they have to see if the the liver will get better before they give away a liver to someone who maybe you know doesn't really need it you know it's like you're giving someone a new liver just so they can keep drinking well and that's what okay i mean what is i would argue that the 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 um the waiting list for a liver should be solely predicated on how badly the liver is needed um Unless we're going to start going down that slippery slope and stop and start denying diabetes treatment for obese people, or um, stop treating people with sexually transmitted disease who had unprotected sex, or we're going to stop treating lung cancer payments uh, patients because they were smoking, I mean, where does it end? Well, um, I I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's like I I understand what they're doing, but it's also not fair. Like you said, if we're talking about alcoholism as a disease that is out of a person's control, then, you know, how dare we, you know, differentiate and that sort of thing. But well, when I you mean, have whole- livers, it's very hard to get a liver. And uh, if you can solve that with just like a basic life change. Well, of the people who are put on that six-month list, um, more than half die within that time because they haven't experienced that six months of sobriety. So they did a study, a landmark European study, it's called, published in 2011, which exposes flaws in that premise, that six months, you know, you show that you may not need the transplant and so forth. Like I said, half the people died. So clearly they needed the liver transplant, right? They needed to stop drinking. How many of them actually stopped drinking? Well, Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's Um, tough, man. I mean, 
the understanding of addiction has evolved. It's, it's, it's viewed more as a disease than a personal failing. So why penalize people with substance abuse disorder as opposed to people who have liver disease from eating you know, too much I don't steak think, or something? I don't you know, think I, it's a penalization, which is a funny word, to, uh, <laughs> to ask somebody to do some work of their own before you know, taking a healthy liver that maybe someone else you know, who is doing the right thing about their health, you know, deserves. Mm. Maybe it's incumbent upon the patient, you know, just like before you get a colonoscopy, you've got to fast, you've got to drink this disgusting liquid. Like, you know what, before you get on the list for a liver transplant, you're going to have to make some basic changes. It is serious surgery. Yeah, but what if you you would die in the interim? Like, you just say, okay, you, you... you only have four months, but you have to show us. You have only have four months to live, but you have to show us that you haven't had alcohol for six months. I don't know. Like, how do we know they they've stopped drinking and then die? Like, is it the, is it is it the doctor's position or place to make moral judgments about lifestyle choices before administering a treatment? I guess is the ultimate question. I wouldn't call it a moral judgment. I would call it like a practical recommendation that must be met. Like, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. It's what this is a very, this is like one of those gray area things. Like, you know, I don't want people to die waiting for a liver just because they have the disease of alcoholism. Well, how about take looking at individual cases? Yeah. Like maybe, you know, because some people may have better predictors of whether or not they're going to drink after their surgery than others. For example, this guy was on his way, literally on his way to rehab. Mm. He had supportive family, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, his chances of drinking again or recidivism were probably lower than some other people's. And in fact, yeah. he shopped, he doctor shopped because some states have that six month rule and some don't. Mm. And he had a, happened to have a very robust social support network that went out, brought him to a bunch of different doctors, and he eventually found a hospital that was willing to put him on the list. He got the liver within a couple of days. Mm. Hasn't had a drink since. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think anytime we're talking about these problems, I mean, it's true of like um, deporting, you know, illegal immigrants and, you know, anything like this, if you do it like um, on a global scale, like you're not looking at individuals, you're going to have problems. I think always the solution is to take things on a case by case basis and just like you said, you know, you've got one guy who is clearly on the road to, you know, he's got a better chance. You know, the problem with that is staffing, right? You don't have enough people to sort of manage all of this. In the, well, right? the, the flip side of that is, yeah, this guy had a robust social support network. He had family that could take time off from work to find all these things. Right. Uh, and, but he was an alcoholic. So do you take alcoholics that don't have you know, the resources to take the time to call around and find doctors and, and treat them differently because they don't have the money right. to do that. I mean, so, so weighing so things not, on an individual scale is also problematic. Yeah. Like unless you're prepared to provide that for them somehow. Yeah. Right. Well, socialized medicine would be the answer would ding, be my ding, argument. Ding, ding. But uh, there you have it. Our, you know. My communist counterpart, <laughs> Mike R. Anyway, that is recovery in the news. <laughs> you can't do it twice. Yeah. Well, people would love it though. You think? Yeah. You should do when we get a Patreon going. You should just do, um, just you scat singing over the recovery <laughs> in the news theme for like fifteen <laughs> That's minutes. It. Yeah. Um, 
we're going to do a Patreon. I wonder, what do you guys want to hear? What would you want to hear? Like, what, you know, we're thinking of doing a second show. I just, Mike, Mike has <laughs> Are we? <laughs> yeah, I haven't told Mike yet, but for a Patreon, I think it would be cool to do like a 40-minute show of something. I don't know. I, I, t- I told Matt that we should do one on um, minor uh, variations in religious doctrine between <laughs> Presbyterians and Catholics. <laughs> that, that'll really bring them in. People will yeah. pay for that. Yes, they will. <laughs> um, yeah, so you guys have some ideas on what kind of show you'd, you'd want to hear on a Patreon, which is something that would go behind a paywall, so... It would be, you know, maybe $5 a month and then we'd put exclusive content. Uh, one of the ideas I had was we could tack a th- 20 or 30 minutes onto the regular show and on the Patreon, Kill you can get now. the whole thing. <laughs> I know, I know, because we don't really have a lot of time. <laughs> we could, we would make it worth your while. Yeah. Right? Um, okay, so let us know. Write Mike R. at middleagedrecovery.com. All right. And now it's time for the week, week in weird. weird. This week... In Weird, William Shatner journeys to space on yes. Blue Origin rocket by Tim Banal. Hold, pause for a second. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission. To explore strange new worlds, to seek out new um, and new civilizations. Beloved Hollywood icon. I wish I could be <laughs> described as that someday. Yes. Beloved Hollywood icon William Shatner made history earlier today when he journeyed into space aboard a Blue Origin New Shepard rocket. The highly anticipated event saw Star Trek's famed Captain Kirk join three other individuals who participated in the private company's. Second such mission. The flight reportedly lasted approximately 10 minutes and allowed the crew to experience around four minutes of weightlessness uh, before the craft safely landed back on Earth by reaching an altitude of 66 miles, which crossed the official barrier of space. The 90-year-old actor is now the oldest person ever to pull off such a remarkable feat. He's 90. He's 90. He looks great for 90. Yeah, he does. A lot of work. Um, He's had a lot of work done. Yeah. Uh, upon returning to terra firma, a deeply moved Shatner rested his hands on Blue Origin founder Jeff Bezos' shoulders and declared that, quote, what you have given me is the most profound experience I could ever imagine. Do you know who's really pissed about this? Probably George Takai. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he hates Shatner, and I bet he wanted to go into space. I bet anyway. he did. The actor went on to marvel that, quote, I'm so filled with emotion over what just happened. It's extraordinary. And mused that, quote, everybody in the world needs to do this. Mm. Um, yeah. Hey, Bill. So that's <laughs> we can't all afford to pay for it. Yeah. I watched um, I watched a clip of that, and, uh, you know, and Bill Shatner, he, he can't not overact like he's always like i can't believe what a wonderful experience you have given me maybe that's just him though it must be after all there's no difference between shatner the actor and shatner the shatner and just like the prodigal son he falls upon jeff bezos neck and you know hugs him devours him (laughs) in one bite so congratulations to Bill Shatner, I want to remind everybody that this is spooky season, and Sergeant Slaughter came up with a brilliant idea that I wanted to put out to the monsters, because especially since uh, Scott is making us keep doing it and blaming us on him, I wanted to do an audience-sourced Week in Weird 
for October. Yeah, good idea. Do you guys have some kind of scary story? Did you grow up in a haunted house? Have you? Did you see a Bigfoot? Um, so send us your ghost stories. Anything kind of a thing. like that? Ghost stories, UFOs, you name it. I want to hear it. And um, I think that would be a lot of fun. So Where should they send us our ghost stories? To Mike R at MiddleAgesRecovery.com. <laughs> okay, great. Or you can send it to NatX. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that would be cool. So, Sergeant Slaughter, you got it. Okay, that's it. You've wasted another perfectly good hour and 37 minutes with recovery in the Middle Ages. And send them forth on their week, Nat. Visit us at MiddleAgesRecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us at twat, you twit, support your favorite show, drop a five-star review, join our private Facebook group, buy a t-shirt. Come on, we got t-shirts left, guys. They're really So cool. many t-shirts. I, and listen, I am not overselling these on the on the, um, on the the boards or anything like that, but we really want to sell not these. Yet. Not yet. I'm going to start <laughs> posting links like every minute. Um, uh, simply write and say hello. We love meeting you guys. And chopping up on the Facebook group. Seriously, we're having a great time on that uh, private group, trying to do more stuff on it. The uh, the book club that Grant is doing, and it's just we're we're having a lot of fun. We're supporting each other's recovery. Uh, a person just posted that they, you know, had abstained from um, I think it was like opioids and, and yeah. alcohol for forty seven days or so. And congratulations! Yes, it's so cool. It's a very supportive are, group of people. Yeah, we're all getting clean, staying clean, and um, not being mean. <laughs> Right. Uh, best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of it, please share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. That's progress, not perfection, folks. See you next time. Be good. <laughs>